Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Shelley Sachs, founder of Ohana International School in Tokyo. In this episode, we start with Shelley's journey in Cape Town during the time of apartheid. She started her career in childhood education and was recognized early on for her excellence in teaching. Her story migrates to Australia and finally to Japan, where Shelley ultimately founded her school. With over 40 years of experience working with children, both teaching and also being a director of schools, you can imagine how many stories and how many insights that she has. And it's Shelley's own need for personal growth that's reflected in her teaching and also the school's curriculum. She consistently encourages children to think for themselves. Her school, Ohana International, just celebrated its 10th anniversary this year. And I really enjoyed hearing about the school's mission to teach children how to embrace differences, to be confident in themselves, and also to think about sustainability as this is their world to take care of. Now, one of my all-time favorite stories about children is from Shelley. She spends quite a bit of time volunteering in Cambodia and, in fact, opened up Ohana Learning Tree, where they built a classroom for kindergarten kids in Cambodia. But the story is about teaching kids about Cambodia, and I found it to be so powerful and beautiful. Kids can be so inspiring, and this is one of the stories that really inspired me. I'd like to thank Meg and Naoko at Oishi Food Tours for the very kind introduction to Shelley. I was told there was a woman that I had to meet the next time I was in Tokyo. And I'm so grateful for the connection because Shelley is an incredibly open-hearted soul who finds beauty and inspiration in children. She finds it in their curiosity, but also just in overall learning and also in love, which we speak about towards the very end. When I asked her about what children taught her, Shelley said kids gave her quite a powerful gift. Kids teach her humility. They teach her to laugh more, to be silly more and also to be true to herself. I'm grateful that Shelley shared this gift with me. Please enjoy this delightful conversation with Shelley Sachs. Hi, Shelley. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining. I know that we spoke a while ago, and one of my favorite stories that I've ever heard came across from you talking about your preschool, what you taught your children, and in particular, a story about Cambodia. But before we get into your amazing background of being a preschool teacher, now founder of a school in Tokyo, you're sitting there in a beautiful apartment in Japan, but I know you grew up in South Africa. So I would love it if you could share with our listeners and rewind your highlight reel a little bit to really share where you grew up. Okay, so gosh, that's a long time ago. It's 28 years, I think. So I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, um, from a traditional Jewish family with three siblings and I went to a public school and when I left school I had no idea what I wanted to do so 
I was really young. I was only just 17. And so my mom suggested that I go and study to be a preschool teacher because when I do become a mum, then school ends at 12.30 and so I'll have the children in the afternoon. Anyway, my life just didn't work out that way. But I still went through becoming an early childhood educator and then doing special ed at university. And I think today, for me, what's so beautiful about being an early childhood educator is that the child in me lives every day. So life in South Africa, I lived in the time of apartheid. I did not know everything that was going on at the time. And when I was old enough to know, I really got upset with my parents for not telling us what was really happening. And at 35 years old, I left the beautiful scenery and nature and exquisite table mountain and oceans and went to live in Australia. So life in Australia then took on quite a similar picture because we're still in the Southern Hemisphere. We have the same seasons and I continued teaching there before coming to Japan. Well, I know that you'd mentioned when we spoke earlier that you were debating not continuing with preschool education. But then, unfortunately for you, but fortunately for your students, you got a teaching award in South Africa. Can you walk through just the decision-making process of what you were debating and then what helped you muscle through that so that here you are today still an educator? It was one year into studying to be a teacher. When I went overseas, my dad said, I'll pay for one overseas trip from South Africa to any, anywhere else in the world was really far. I'll pay for one overseas trip. Where do you want to go? So I landed up going to Greece and Israel. And when I returned, this was what I said to him. I don't think I want to be a teacher anymore. And, of course, the guilt from dad was, is that what I get for sending you overseas? <laughs> so I was sort of forced to continue. And then in the years after, when I had sort of moments of, I want to be an architect or I want to be an artist or I don't really know what I want to be. I just sort of hankered on. And I think that my transition really was in therapy in Australia, where I really touched on, of course, things in my childhood, which made me understand why the child in me needed to live every day. So that's why I'm still doing it. So you were in Australia and you were able to transition that and be a school teacher there. And then you moved to Tokyo. How did Ohana start? When I decided to come and live in Tokyo, I got a job at a school. And so I spent four years teaching there. Then there were certain things within the leadership which I didn't feel so comfortable with. So I thought I found a job at another school. And once again, I felt really challenged having led schools before, having been an educator. And the last school I was at, the person who owned it was not an educator. They were a business person. So their requirements of me didn't sit so comfortably with me as an educator. And that's really what pushed me into starting my own school. And so can you share the background behind Ohana as a name? In the very first school where I taught, I taught in Hana class. And Hana means in Japanese, it means flower. And when I was searching for a name for the school, I emailed friends all around the world and I wanted a name that could still connect with Japan, but also connected with me as a person. And one of my friends here, 
she's Japanese American and she grew up in Japan and she said, how about Ohana? Her child was actually in my class, in Hannah class, when he was four years old. And so then she went on to expand and she said, well, in Hawaiian, Ohana means family and friendship. And so how about Ohana International School where children bloom and friendships flourish? And it was just bingo. <laughs> Perfect. And I know that you just celebrated your 10th anniversary this year. So congratulations on Ohana International School turning 10. And so can you describe the backgrounds of some of the students? I know it's around the world. I think we still have about 20 nationalities represented in the school. And we have countries from, we have a dad from Vietnam. We have American, we have South African, we have Lithuanian, we have German, we have Canadian, we have Hong Kong Chinese. The list is endless. I love that. It's quite a beautiful list. And what is Ohana International School about? What is its goal, its purpose, its mission? Well, our mission is, and it's very pertinent at the moment, is about embracing difference and valuing difference and seeing the positives and everything that we can learn from difference because there is such a beauty in difference. And I think we're faced with so much of that in our world at the moment. Another thing we, I feel like my main goal for every child in the school is that if they leave us confident, independent, with a good sense of self-esteem, I've given them the gift to fly because academics is something that comes naturally, but being emotionally well as a person doesn't come naturally. And we We've seen it in our world today. So we also focus a lot on sustainability. So we have a huge banner outside the school which says Zero Plastic Friday. And this is our third year of teaching the children about it's your world. So what can you do to help take care of your world? So within that context, we've done many programs. We built a kindergarten classroom in Cambodia and 50 one people from the school, children and parents and teachers went for the opening two years ago, I think, to see how other people live and learn and are educated. So we would like everybody in the world to have the same opportunities as our children have. I love that. That's beautiful. I mean, there's so much that you said that, that I want to ask about. You mean from teaching differences for the kids, teaching them confidence, and then certainly the sustainability impact is really great as well. Going back to maybe confidence first, how do you teach preschoolers confidence? And I'm selfishly asking because I have two boys, four and seven, but how do you do that at such an early age? I know it's an ongoing project and there's not just one thing to say, here you go and you're confident and you move on. But how do you instill that in your curriculum? I think one of the things we do is we're very real with the children and we believe that no and yes are both part of life. So we have no problem to say no if a child is doing something that is inappropriate. We also feel that it's important to listen to everybody and that whatever you say is valuable and valid. So, of course, our little ones don't have so much language, so we don't use it as much with them. But for the older ones, when they ask a question about something, we ask them the question back. We say, oh, I'm not sure. What do you think? So putting it back on them and saying, oh, that's interesting. So, for example... Like, where does the rain come from? I'm not sure. Where do you think? So listening to their whole story about the rain, 
I don't really believe at this stage of their lives they need facts, they need to know everything. They still need to have the ability to wonder and imagine things in life and be creative with their minds rather than be so structured in, oh no, this is not right and that's not right. Of course, we get children who do say, when we say something, oh no, that's not right, my mom told me this. So helping them believe in themselves and trust themselves and that they are appreciated and valued. Well, I know how honest and direct children can be. <laughs> so if I tell my sons something's happening, they're like, what time? Is it 129 or is it 132? Like they're so precise with everything. And so details really matter with them at that age. How do you teach differences? And the beautiful part about your school is that there's, you had mentioned students come from over two dozen countries and they see the rainbow of people, which is great from South Asia, Southeast Asia, Latin America, the States. Do you openly teach diversity and how to spot differences or is it so inclusive that they don't necessarily even think about it? I think it's the latter. We live the differences just by being together as who we are. So I always feel everything in life should be normalized for children and not made to be something that has to be taught. So, for example, with me and Moko, we are two women, we're married, we live together. So when she's been in the classroom and comes in and kisses me hello and, and children look at me and I say, yes, this is Moko and she's my wife. And, oh, yeah, you can have boys marry boys and girls marry girls and boys marry girls and many different kinds of families, and nobody's ever questioned about me about it. So in the same way, I feel like we are different. We would, of course, do art projects, and I know in the older class in particular and the middle class, the children would look at themselves and do self-portraits and then have different colored paint and spices and turmeric and cocoa and all those things and give them a palette to mix the colors, and then they put their hands there and say, yeah, this looks like it's my color. But often it's completely not the color of their skin, but it's their perception. So in this way, they see their differences, but they embrace them because it's just who they are. One of my favorite stories from an educator is yours. And you tried to teach your students about Cambodia. Can you share that story? Because it's so beautiful that I wanted people to listen to it. So when I was working at another school, they also built a school in Cambodia. And we were asked by the director to teach our children about Cambodia. So, of course, the first things you would think of is a flag and the map, or maybe a bit of Khmer, what language do they speak? And I felt like that was not where I come from as an educator. So I spoke to a friend of mine in Australia who's a psychotherapist, and I said, just can you throw some ideas at me about what could I do to teach the children about Cambodia and the life that people live, which means that the education they have and the opportunities are completely different. And she said, why don't you teach them about what it is not to have? Because we all have. So let's see, how can we do what not to have? So I went back to my team in the classroom and I said, okay, this is what I'd like the theme for our teaching of Cambodia to be and what can we do? What do the children in Cambodia not have in a classroom, for example, as we have? Well, first of all, they don't have a classroom often. So let's go and learn outside. So of course, I had to get permission from the director who then, and then we asked the parents as well. 
So we decided actually to pack away the entire classroom with the children. So we took every single toy off the shelf, every single book, every single writing implement, paper. All they had in the classroom was empty shelves, tables and chairs, and a carpet and their lockers. And we headed off to the park for an entire week where we actually videoed it and where we just, we learned with acorns and leaves and soil and stones and creatures. And actually when I walked back on the very first day, I was videoing them and I started to cry because I was so moved by who they were in that moment and that there was no conflict. Of course, the conflicts came later in the week. <laughs> there isn't a perfect world. but And also the need for a bit of possession came later in the week as well when they wanted to bring stones back from the park. And so we did bring them back from the park and then we used them to create stories. So like I would tell a story, I would say a sentence and then the next child and we would use the stones as our props for the story. And then after... I think about 10 days, I felt like it had been an incredible learning experience for us all. How could I now transition? So I didn't want to, there's so much abundance or overabundance in our lives and even in our classrooms. So what could I do? So I asked them, if you could have one thing back in the class, what would you really like? And one of the things we do at our school is we ask every family to make a life book. And that is the story of the child from birth until now with pictures of family, friends from all around the world because for us, family is so important. And even though I was in another school, it also felt like it had such relevance and everyone, most people's families were far away. So most of them said their life book. And then we had, I think, a pencil and paper, which also came back. Rewinding a little bit, I love that story and just that experience that you cultivated so for 10 days, the kids had nothing in their classroom. And were there any complaints or were they like, okay, this is fun and it's a new adventure? Like, What was their reaction like to pack up all of the color in the classroom? I think because we did it with them, children love packing and unpacking. So this was, there were so many positive elements in it. So we packed it into our little storeroom that was attached to the class and so they could see it. But our learning actually didn't take place in the classroom I would say 90% of the day was in the park. So the time in the classroom was limited. And did you find it hard to instruct outside or did you find it a little bit easier because they were just more focused on what you were going to say with no other visual distractions and no desk or pen or paper distractions? I also feel like what they are interested in is the provocation for me as a teacher. So I taught them through them through their interest, through what they were talking about. And that's how our lessons were. I couldn't plan anything because I didn't know how this whole experience would evolve. I felt the profundity of it was incredible, honestly. We need very little to learn. We need very little in terms of things. And I come from Africa and I saw it in the streets as well. So this was kind of a bit of an extension. And so what was the reaction after this almost two-week experiment, what was their feedback and what did they tell their parents? I'm sure there was a lot of stories at home being told. Gosh, I can't remember. So I just remember it was incredibly positive and we shared the video with parents who were very, very moved. 
I think that my class and the families that year were very touched by the depth of my teaching. And so it fitted in with the culture of the classroom that year. I love the saying that I heard earlier this summer, just because this pandemic, I think, has elevated everybody's stress levels (laughs) and anxiety levels. And I saw someone say, it's impossible to be negative when you're in a state of gratitude. And as overwhelmed as I felt, I know I am so grateful for so many things. There's an abundance of luck in my life that allows us to have shelter and an iPad for Zooming for school. Did you get a sense that the kids were grateful for that experience and grateful for their things, whether it's their life book or their pen and pencils and paper after it was returned? Or like, what does a preschool level of gratitude feel like? Because I'm not sure my four-year-old really has that sense of appreciation. But I'm curious, given that you had so many students that went through that experiment, how they express their gratitude for the things that they had in their classroom. I think the ones that impacted me most were the ones who wanted their life books because that was like a real treasure. It was having their family. It was having their life with them that they could relate to. So I felt that those children were really grateful for their life books. It's like, where's my family? When we went to Cambodia with the families from Ohana and they saw where the people lived because we lived in villages, they asked so many questions. Where's the toilet? Where's the water? So I don't know if the actual experience of gratitude is experienced by the children, but I think they notice the difference. They notice what they have and what these people didn't have. But perhaps when they're older, they'll remember it. And so we're taping this in October of 2020. And you have had many months under your belt now of teaching in the time of COVID. What has that been like both in the spring? And then I know you had a summer off for about a month. And then what it was like in the fall, but I would love to get your thoughts there. Well, we were closed for two months from March till the end of May. And of course, I was at school all the time and trying to plan for what would it look like when we returned? What do we do in order to transition back to school? And of course, following guidelines from the Japanese government. So it took me really about 10 full days of working to create a blueprint for what we would do when we returned then, what we would do when we came back in for summer school, what we would do when we returned in August. And I think I was unbelievably stressed at the time. I think when you speak about gratitude, yes, we do have so much to be grateful for. But I think that sometimes it's so low down on our accessible list of values that it's hard to find. But I crossed thousands of T's. I dotted millions of I's. I looked for things that parents would ask. And our return was amazing. We had screens, custom-made screens made, which are on the table every day. When the children come, they do art, they do everything with screens, separating them. They have meal times. They do sit in circle times without screens. We have temperature taking as you walk on the premises. Parents have a a document to fill in every night what the child's temperature is, what every morning what it is. We then take it when they arrive during the day. First thing they do, our little 15-month-olds, is go and wash their hands. When they walk in the classroom, the minute a finger's in a nose or a mouth, it's go and wash your hands. So we have sanitizer. 
We don't have carpets, we don't have soft toys, we don't have dramatic play area. So this is when I'm saying, you know, children can learn from not having physical things, but they just need loving, dedicated professionals to help them learn. Other than the screens and the additional hand washing and sanitizing, do you find that the curriculum is the same? Or do you feel like the receptivity of the kids in this pandemic has changed the way that they'll receive instruction from their teachers? Not really, because we vary. Our education is, we influenced a lot by radio, where we do a lot of questions and documenting and children help us um, decide on what we will teach them um, rather than what we think they should know. So I don't think their learning is different. I think that they are, you know, always feel like when children are so little, they're so incredibly adaptable. And they are. Not one of them looked at the screens and said, what's this? Well, because they're transparent. So the world looks the same, basically. I think that the quality of education is just as good. That's great. Are you familiar with Sir Ken Robinson? Yes. I love his work. He's an author and educator, but I love his focus on curiosity and creativity and how so much of what you're saying resonates with me because school generally, and I think so many parents are thinking about the construct of education now of what are we doing here? Is it force-fed and formed for kids or is it really for the adults? And I think it's what we've discovered through all of this is it's mostly for the adults and kids are so much more capable of what we let them do. And so I love that you allow almost them to guide the instruction, guide the curriculum outside and count acorns or play with twigs and really come up with a more values-based thinking process. I love that. Thank you. And also what's made me think about education in a very deep way now is, is not our level, is if children learn hybridly, okay, or on Zoom, or if they only go to school X number of days for X number of hours, why did we insist on them having so many hours beforehand? They really don't need so many hours of learning if the learning is done appropriately for them rather than coming from the top and saying, okay, this is what I believe children should learn. Children should be included in what they should be learning. And so you've had a background with elementary school kids and preschool kids for decades and decades. What have you learned from all of that time with kids? I feel like we just really need to let children be. We really should think much more about their needs than our needs as adults. Let them be ripe for when it's their turn to choose what sort of career they want. I feel like it's like when you're a farmer and you have an apple orchard. The apples you pick are not the great ones. The ones that fall down are the ones that are really, really ripe. So I feel like I don't know. Children teach me humility. They teach me to probably laugh more and be silly more and just be true to myself. And I think that's the gift that I've got from them. And I think I hear some of your kids starting to enter the school halls (laughs) now. Be thoughtful so that you can start school on time. I wanted to ask a few more questions. Who or what inspires you? I thought a lot about that, but I feel like the people who most inspire me are my dearest, dearest friends. They are my mentors. They are my solid rocks that I can sit on and lie on and lean on. And each one of them, and I'm so grateful that I still have some from my childhood, from my teenage years and from my early 20s, very present in my life. 
I think they really, really are my inspiration. And then, to be honest with you, the children inspire me because they push me. They push me as a leader of a school. They push me to be my best. I don't know when is anybody ever their best, but they just push me to want to be my best. So you've been a teacher for many decades. You started this school 10 years ago, and you also opened a school in Cambodia. What do you think is more fulfilling for you, being a teacher in the classroom or being a director and kind of founder of the school? I think they all have little parts that nourish me. But I do want to add that when I went to Cambodia for the opening and we stopped outside the school and the doors opened and everybody on the bus let me go first, I couldn't get off the bus because I was sobbing. Because there was a guard of honor. These children had stood at the gate, hundreds and hundreds of them on each side of the path waiting for us to come. And that really pushed something so profound in me. So, of course, I love this, my ohana here. I love being in the classroom. I love what I've been able to create for families, for staff, for myself. But that, for me, was my crowning glory. And that's your legacy. Not only Ohana International School in Tokyo, but this beautiful school in Cambodia. It's wonderful. What is your biggest growth moment? I think that the show, we certainly ask about struggles and adversity and We've only touched upon part of your story, but could you share maybe your biggest growth moment from any type of adversity or failure? I think coming to Japan was a huge growth moment for me because it was so different. I also was coming to live with a woman. I'd never had relationships with women. I'd been with men. Coming to live with a woman who I'd met for 10 days. And then, of course, she came to Australia to leave the country with me. So like we'd really been together only for three weeks and I had found a job and had resigned and was giving up a life for another life. So in loss, there's always gain, but in gain, there's loss. And I felt bereft without people who I could connect with. And I still today say that the only reason why, and people say, are you so often on WhatsApp or whatever I said, my connection with my history and my love is, this is how it is, especially now when we cannot fly. I suppose therapy also helped me when I was in therapy in Australia, really pushed me to just be me and follow my truth and be my honest self. And I think in Japan, it can be a challenge because there's a veneer that people live with. But I think I managed to balance putting up that veneer when I need to and really being my true self here. I already know a few people who are going to yell at me if I end the conversation here (laughs) because there's so much about your personal life that we didn't cover until you'd mentioned that. And I happen to know it, but if you could maybe just share the amazing story of meeting Moko, because I know that many people know in South Africa and in Australia, you were married before to a man. And you had mentioned to me before that you don't like labels. You wouldn't say that you like women or men, or you don't categorize yourself as that. You just love Moko as a being and as a soul. So I I thought that was beautiful. But I know a few listeners would be like, what? No, you can't end it here. So if you could share that beautiful story. I think it was July 2003. I suddenly had this epiphany. I started doing art once a week. And I had this epiphany that 
I didn't want to be the director of the school anymore. And I just wanted to work four days a week, earn much less money, do art an extra day and be on my own. I sort of looked around at me and I thought, well, which couple do I love and care about whose relationship I'd like to emulate with someone? And I love everybody, so no, please don't take offense. I just thought like being on my own is so complicated on this by itself. I don't need someone else to complicate it more. So I decided to resign. But of course, lots of negotiation and how would this transition? So then I transitioned and everyone accepted in the following year, in 2004, January, I would become a teacher in a class. And in December, I'm just telling a few little frills to lead up to it. In December, January, I went on an early childhood conference to Israel, which was incredible. It was really profound and moving. And I had one experience in the desert on my own where we had to go, where we couldn't see anybody, where I wrote something from inside of me, not from my head, from inside of me. And that was quite a huge experience for me. And I just sobbed in the desert at that time. And then many things were happening. But the last day of being in Israel, the leader said, who wants to hold up the Havdalah candle, which is a special candle that's held up to end the Sabbath. And I didn't grow up in a religious family, so I had no idea what it entails as it me. So I held it up half an hour, 45 minutes holding this lit candle. I thought, oh, please help me. Anyway, at the very end of holding up the candle, she turned around to me and she said, I just want you to know that of the 10 or 12 groups that I've taken on this trip, seven of them on their return home, wherever they lived, have contacted me and said they met their partners and husbands and they're getting married. I thought, oh gosh, this is so outside of what my plan is for myself now. So I returned to Australia. I taught from January till March. I came then to Tokyo to visit friends here. I didn't really want to come because I felt like my new rhythm of life was great and I didn't want to sort of fragment what my experience is. Anyway, I came here and... I went with my friend to her taiko drumming class, which Mocha was the teacher, and I was curious. And I went away for a few days, and on my return, I sent her an email to say, I'd love to meet you. Would you like to have coffee? And I came back. I left on the Monday. I came back on the Friday. She sent me an email to say, oh, she was very, very busy, and she listed her entire schedule, as she would do. And then on Friday, we went for coffee. And she picked me up on her scooter. It was freezing cold and took me to a little beach area called Odaiba. And we had coffee on the beach and we were together for 10 days. And I stayed, I paid $500 to change my ticket to stay an extra day for her birthday. And on her birthday day, we went to Shibuya, if you've been to Shibuya. And we went to the wedding section in a department store and she bought she bought rings for us, and that was it. We got married in Vancouver in Stanley Park on the 7th of the 7th, 2007 at 7, because 7 is a very significant number in Japan, and it's called Tanabata. Beautiful. It's very clear that you focus on beauty and gratitude in people, regardless of whether they're children or where they're from. So I just think that is so incredible, and we need a lot more of that. So thank you for sharing that. What is next for Shelly Sachs? 
I think COVID really changed things for me now. And I'm so present here and I'm so loving being here. I don't feel that I'll ever fully retire because I feel that I've got so much to give still. And I think I'm honest enough with myself to be able to stay when I don't have more to give, then I will stop. But I can't imagine that I will stop. So this is where I am. I wish I could see my loved ones more and touch them and hug them. But that's something to be patient <laughs> and wait for. But in the meantime, I'm very present here in my life with Moko. And we're also being pushed to explore Japan, which is absolutely incredible to travel in. A woman I interviewed, her name's Martha Tolls. She's 99 years young, and she had a suggestion for people that if you can, to write a memoir, because they are so special and the stories just don't carry forward. I cannot wait to read the book that you eventually will write, because I am sure it'll be wonderful. I know that you were thinking about writing a book. Was it a memoir, or was it a children's book, or maybe both? I actually wrote a poem about COVID for children in that rhythm of the cat and hat, which I'm going to. John, who's one of my teachers, is an artist, is going to illustrate. So that could be the first book. But the book, I've got so many stories that I've made up for children. I think that I would do some children's books. And then I definitely think my story, I want to write my story, even if it's just for me. Well, it'll be for me too. I promise I'll read it and I'll buy <laughs> copies and I'll distribute it to everyone I know. So, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this show. I really love our time together and I appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you so much. Thank you.